everybody. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for the first week in November of 2023. I am Charles Hain. I am a 35mm film teacher. I'm here with Gigi Hawkins, director. Hello. And writer Jason Hellerman. Good morning. And this week on the No Film School podcast, we're talking about a project shot on film and whether or not it should have an intermission against the filmmaker's wishes. We're talking about shooting on airplanes and specifically airplane stages. And we are talking about the new Apple M3 systems that all just got released at night, which is like the first time Apple's, you know, you got to mix it up. So respect. That is this week on the No Film School podcast. So the first subject this week, we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon, and we're going to talk about intermissions killers the flower moon before we do that i'm just going to plug a thing i'm always plugging at the end but i'm going to plug it at the top and you're all going to deal with it i'm teaching 35 millimeter classes in brooklyn next summer brooklyn 35 millimeter.com you want to learn to shoot on film you're like a student these are college credit classes so like if you're an undergrad and you're like i would like to shoot film you can say to your parents this will save me tuition at my school because i can transfer the credits back and take less of your classes wherever you are and spend time in Brooklyn in June this summer learning to shoot 35mm. Brooklyn35mm.com. Can I ask some questions about it? Yes, please do. So how long is the course? Like, could somebody like me who lives in LA come out, get a little, do a little apartment It is a two-week course, four days a week for two weeks. Uh, We're talking to dorms. There's a dorm nearby Pratt where you could stay in a dorm or you do an Airbnb, although Airbnb is now illegal in New York. Uh, you could stay in a hotel or just rent something. So it's, yeah, it's a two-week thing or a four-week thing if you really want four weeks of it. And it's the two-week thing is three credits. The four-week thing is six credits. So if you could save yourself like half a semester of college tuition, learning to shoot 35 at Brooklyn College. Shoot and on the Panaflex and the Airbnb. And if I'm not in college, can I still take the class? Anyone could do it. If you're like a DP, two years into your career, and you're like, I've never shot film, and I should really shoot some film. And everybody shoots and gets footage for your reel. That's amazing. I love that. I want to yeah. do it. Okay, maybe I'll pitch this to my honey. We go out there. And it feels like such a great exercise in intentional filmmaking. Because, you know, yes. one of the things that we were just doing on on my movie is not cutting. Because it saved us time on an indie thing. But that's a lot of, you know, being able to sit and be like, I don't know, try this one. But with film, you got to decide. Yeah, you're making decisions ahead of time. You're, you're thinking it through. So you're going to hear me plugging that a lot over the next six months because I, I want to, I want to, I don't know, I want people to take this class. I'm, I'm, I'm considering flying in now. Yeah. Well, I, 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 <laughs> we could record the podcast while the 35 millimeter camera runs. I know. That'd be cool. <laughs> On 45, 35 millimeter. Yeah. It's a podcast <laughs> recording. In my college, we had to shoot a short on a Bolex. I don't know if you guys play with those, Charles, but it was, I do think intentional is the right word. Like you only had a limited amount of film. And I remember the teacher was like, you know, it was, I think you had 50% more than you needed. And she was like, you just have to make sure you finish. That's like the way to get an A is just shoot, shoot intentionally enough where you're not like, I ran out and I did get it all the way through, but I hadn't closed the shutter for half the shots. So it was really experimental where some of them are just like, you know, slipping, <laughs> slipping past. and some of them are the most beautiful shots. I, I, you know, to this day, I'm like, I cannot believe I captured these images and the other ones just look like an x-ray. But yeah. did you ever do a digital transfer? Can we see it or do we have to project it? I did do a digital transfer. It was back when you could just like send it to Kodak and they'd send you back an, a thumb drive with it, I think. 
wherever we got developed. And I have it somewhere. I will find it and I'll share it with you. It's called yeah, Race Car. we got to put it on the YouTube channel for the right podcast. <laughs> I'm like I dying to see it. it. Yeah, for sure. All right. So first subject this week, Killers of the Flower Moon. For once, I've actually seen the hot new movie out, which never yeah. happens. But I was on a shoot and we the, the DP and I went. The DP, Todd Blankenship, who used to be on this podcast, if you guys were oh, wow. longtime listeners. Todd and I went to the movies in Phoenix, Arizona and saw it. And it's very, very good, obviously. Like, come on. But some movie theaters have been adding intermissions without Scorsese's permission. And Thelma Shoemaker is pissed. Yeah, it came up. It's so interesting. <laughs> I feel like right as this story was breaking, I had a buddy who was like, I'm in Fort Collins, Colorado, and they're showing this movie with an intermission. And I was like, tell me everything. And then like an hour later, Apple dropped it like, a theater in Fort Collins is doing, you know, whatever. But, you know, so interesting kismet there. But basically, it's it's not just there. Uh, there's a couple of theaters across Europe have arbitrarily added an intermission at different points. One was around 90 minutes into the movie. The other, I think, said it was kind of closer to the two, a little over the two hour mark. And it was basically just theaters saying, like, we've decided that this would be more popular and, you know, there's no metrics. None of them came out with like, it made it, we had people who asked or whatever. So they went to Thelma Shoemaker and asked her in an interview. And she was just like, that's, you know, horrible. And Paramount doubled down and was emailing everybody kind of a cease and desist letter that was just like, mm-hmm. hey, look, this isn't what Martin Scorsese intended. And we get it. It's three and a half hours. But, you know, please don't do that. If if the movie is going to be three hours and everything is warranted to be in there, then I'm all for this intermission. Let's bring it back. Let's bring back the intermission. I recently watched The Sound of Music, accidentally did the sing-along version, which is quite (laughs) delightful. Has an intermission, like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, has an intermission. It's just like a nice palate cleanser. And it's also like a moment to like reflect on the story that you're watching. 2001, Lawrence of Arabia, yeah. Yeah. Sure, but I I mean, the flip side of that is... Lawrence's story structure, it's 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 sequence structure, its beats are built around that intermission. Like the the moment of that intermission is so deliberate. Mm-hmm. And when you come back from that intermission, it is so like, and I am back. And I yeah. like it is it is so like built into the like it's not something that you can add. You know, I, I yes. used to have a cinema teacher who used to say that the real person with final cut is the projectionist. And and like that's what we're seeing here is we're seeing projectionists or not projectionists because it's probably digital. It's we're seeing theater owners making that decision. Making decisions. And while I understand that like it's nice, you know, James Cameron had a great quote when Avatar was three hours where he's like, I don't care if you go to the bathroom, just go to the bathroom. Like it's fine. But like that's a completely different thing than arbitrarily adding an intermission that forces everyone to go to the bathroom at the same time, first off, but also interrupts the narrative flow for every single viewer. Mm-hmm in a way that wasn't planned. And like, you know, most of the work of filmmaking is planning. And yeah. Yeah. If, if you're going to build an intermission... Now, what's interesting to me is that Scorsese is old enough that he grew up with intermissions and he's now done two two-hour-plus movies that I would have been open to intermissions in, but he did not plan them. The, yeah. you, you are never relieved from the relentless torrent that is Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I, I think... You know, with, with killers and without giving away too much of the plot details, if you've seen the movie and want to learn more about the ending, nofilmschool.com has a pretty good article on <laughs> interpreting it. But, you know, it does feel like the relentlessness, I think, is the perfect word, Charles. Like, that's what that movie is about, you know, sort of uh, a, a relentless effort. And, and I think, like, putting an intermission maybe is a pause. I'm all for bringing them back, you know, just in general. Like, it would be great if 
other filmmakers had conversations about it or, you know, studios thought about it just because I do think in this era, we're going to the movies is an event, right? It costs money. You're gathering time. You know, for me, I got to like make sure my dog is taking his anxiety pills if I'm going to watch a four hour movie without him, you know, but uh, it's like, I I do think, you know, it'd be nice, but I was reading an article and it's funny. I have, you know, friends who still work in the, in the theater game, if you will, talking to them, working at a couple of independent theaters and their worry a lot of times with intermissions, which this is something I hadn't thought about at all. Maybe the reverse side is that they specifically are scheduling times for movies when concessions and bathrooms aren't super busy. So things are starting and going. And he's like, if we have an intermission, suddenly you have a theater dumping out half its people at least, right? For maybe only five or six minutes hitting that rush. And, you know, I I do think that's an interesting thing. But, you know, I I don't know if we'll be like, I can't imagine it causing that much chaos like an AMC Century City, which, you know, has like, you know, 50 urinals that (laughs) I've never seen it for. An excess of urinals. Yeah, but it is an interesting, you know. Do do we know, have you guys ever been to a movie theater to see a film that has an intermission? Oh, yeah. I've seen Lawrence in the theater a couple times. Yeah, I've only what gotten to see Lawrence once. But yeah. <laughs> in theater. So do, yeah. does everyone stand up or does the whole theater spill out or how does Maybe that work? Maybe a third of the people like continue to mill around. People, Everybody stands up and stretches their legs. About two thirds take off in oh. order to get more popcorn. Oh, I'd say oh, a third the, of the people come back. come back with extra food for the second yeah. half, for sure. And, you know, you're chatting about what you've seen and you're stretching. And Oh, and I also saw How the West Was Won at Cinerama Dome, oh, and that had cool. an intermission. Yeah. And that was fun because that was, I mean, it was one of the, you know, they show it in Cinerama itself every once in a while. So the whole time, everybody was talking about, like, what they'd noticed about Cinerama. And, like, yeah. and then we went back in the second half and we were looking at Cinerama having like the fresh eyes from the intermission where it had been a conversation. And, you know, in Lawrence, even with people who've seen Lawrence, you're talking about like, you're having this conversation about the first half that informs your experience of the second half mm-hmm. Yep. in a way that like, again, I think is really part of the planning. I, I hate to keep harping on Lawrence, but I feel like Lawrence did the intermission so well yeah. where it is so clearly part of the story. And it's 2001 so- too. Yeah. It's like two different movies, you know, like cause the intermission oh, happens yeah. pre, you know, Pre-breaking yeah. apart of how and everything. So, yeah. Y'all want some real nerdy intermission knowledge for Please. the 3D boom of the 50s? Yes. So even pretty short 3D movies, like if you've seen Kiss Me Kate in 3D or any of those, like it's so odd that Kiss Me Kate was 3D, but everything in, you know, that 1952 yeah. was like 3D everything. Even like the hour and a half long movies have intermissions. And the reason why is because most movie theaters have two projectors. So you can switch over reel to reel. If you've seen Fight Club, you know, that famous thing, Tyler Durden, he's up there, he's switching from projector to projector. Modern, mo- modern movie theaters don't do this. They make one mega reels. They have one projector with like a 40,000 foot mega platter, you know, that is a huge, but they actually break those down into those locally. You can't really ship those like eight foot wide reels around. So that's built locally and then broken down locally when they still show a print, which is obviously less common nowadays. But back in the fifties, they didn't do mega reels. They hadn't invented the mega platter. So you had two projectors to change reel to reel to do 3D. You had to use both projectors. So because both projectors were working, you had to have an intermission so that you could take the first half of the movie off the projector and put the second half of the movie on the projector. I love Because this. both projectors were working at the same time. <clears throat> so like, you know, an hour and 20 minute 3D movie would have an intermission at 40 minutes in because that's as far as they could go before yeah. they had to change the things. So it's, you know, 
And like, it, it was just part of the deal with seeing a 3D movie is you had an intermission. You could stretch your legs and be like, oh my God, can you remember that time that that dude, he did the little thing and the spear poked at me. It's interesting how in, even in a shorter film, it had to be an intentional choice. And I'm sure that there was a conversation about like, okay, this is where it's going to be. And, and this isn't apples to apples, but like, Famously, I grew up only watching the first VHS of Titanic, which <clears throat> ends. It is at, the first thing most people learn about you. I know, I know. It is a, it is pro- the fun, the most fun fact uh, of my whole life. And it was a happy, lovely movie with a little ice, you know, falling on a deck in the very end. And and they lived happily ever after. That's one version of the movie. And but but I I, I do think that like obviously James Cameron to bring it back to him did not want people to watch Titanic and take that pause. But in the home viewing experience, because of the limitations of VHS, he had to intentionally make a choice about where the VHSs were going to split because you can't fit that whole movie on one VHS reel or whatever you call them. But, you know, this these, these sort of decisions that the equivalent of a projectionist is making with Flowers of the Killer Moon that that does feel like it's taking away from the storytelling to Charles's original point. And I wonder, especially because we are not seeing them let up on these long movies, like, is there an option? You know, I feel bad for my my Nana who can't really sit through a three-hour movie. Like, she needs to go to the bathroom. And we've talked about the app, the, I think it's called, you know. Yeah, Wendy P, yeah. Yeah, right. exactly. But for the the nanas out there who who aren't as tech savvy, like I, I do think it's worth, even if it's during like the matinee, catering to an audience that it's a little more friendly and being intentional about like where you want that intermission to be. Well, I mean, I think that's something that like, I think it is something to reckon with if you desire to make theatrical cinematic experiences. If your goal is a theatrical release, that's a much smaller pool of movies than it used to be. Like, you know, in the 90s, the dream for everybody was theatrical release. And I got a theatrical release for my indie in 2013. I was just like, if I made another indie of the size of that movie I made in 2013, I would not even be thinking of a theatrical, right? But if you're like, I'm getting a theatrical, I think there is some, you know, like famously, a lot of people have always planned for like the, the like Walmart airline friendly version of their movie where it's like, okay, I know this scene's going to get cut out. So I'm going to shoot this alternate or I'll do a take in which there's a dub. Like filmmakers get involved in that. And I think that there is some reasonable argument to be made to say like, all right, I'm going to get a theatrical and I'm going to think ahead of where this intermission should be. I'm against it, but I recognize that here is a good point where this can be the optional intermission because you know, it's at least reckoning with the limitations of the human body. On the mm-hmm. flip side, this is also really interesting because, you know, America is famously not a country without laws protecting arti- artistic intent. So if you look at something like the, you know, the, you know, Woody Allen is a terrible human being, but he in they crops Manhattan yeah. for television and he got really pissed about it. And the reason Letterbox was invented was because he sued about it, but he couldn't sue in America. He sued in France, where there are laws about protecting artistic intent. And because of that process, Letterboxd, the concept of, oh, I'm not going to just fill my video frame. I'm going to preserve the original framing with black bars on top and bottom, became a thing because of that lawsuit. But we don't have those laws in America. Like, Thelma Shoemaker can go to the press, and we all respect Thelma Shoemaker and one of the all-time greats. And, you know, hopefully that respect will help create it. But, you know, it is... Maybe I'm... No, it's annoying. It's annoying because Am- we watch films on Amazon and they're cropped and they're yeah. punched in. And it's like, this was not the filmmaker intent. 
and it doesn't look as good. Like it's disheartening. And yeah, but it is one of those things now of like, you know, there we are well past. The, like if if it was 1938, right? It's a one three three frame, and it's going to show in a movie theater, and that's it. But pretty and much get the since hell out of the, Germany, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But pretty much since the invention of television, every filmmaker has had to think in multiple formats on every project you do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I mean, there is famously an, a different cut of The Godfather in the 70s where they yeah. recut for television that Coppola was very involved in taking, I believe it was Godfather 1 and Godfather 2 got cut together into yeah, one. Together. Bi- yeah. yeah. And that Coppola supervised. And wow. like, so like there's always been like the dream of I'm going to create one object and this one object is exactly my intent is something that we don't always have the power to do. And I think that there is an argument to be made that like filmmakers should consider accepting a little bit. I mean, it's always the like, where does my control end? And I think one of the realities is accepting that things are getting shown in all sorts of different formats and times and, and getting involved as you can in that. And I think intermission planning might be something, if you're going to do anything longer than three hours, I think intermission planning, if you're not Scorsese is fair. Scorsese can do whatever the fuck he wants. And if he says no intermission, I, I will just not drink liquid ahead of time. Yeah, take that, Nana. But yeah, look, it's Blackberry, right? I love that movie. came out this year. If you haven't seen it, it's it's great. But I got uh, their interview with Kurt Loeb, the editor. Yes, exactly. Oh, on no, nofilmschool.com. But they're recutting Blackberry, and I'm assuming with the director, into a three-episode miniseries that they're going to show on AMC, the AMC Whoa. channel. And it's like, basically, he's adding 20 minutes of footage that was cut out of the movie. Which, you know, movie needs to, that movie is tight and like really rolls and it, it, it feels, you know, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And for the episodic, he's like, yeah, we'll throw in these scenes and we'll, we'll do it. And it'll be a three night event, which I think is kind of fascinating. Cause I'm like, I wonder if that qualifies you for like a, a limited series Emmy, you know, or whatever. But, uh, and Tarantino, when he did Hateful Eight, also recut it into a four episode show for Amazon, where it was like, oh, you could watch an hour at a time. I, I which think, I like, watched. Yeah. And it's exactly. great. Yeah, I honestly liked it maybe weirdly better than sitting and watching. But that movie also had an intermission, right? Which was, And a really well-planned <laughs> for intermission. Exactly. So it's also one it's of those things we should think the, about. Yeah. The thing I like about what Blackberry is doing, the thing that bummed me out about The Bear is The Bear Season 2 is great. The Bear Season 2 is so strong. But because they dropped all the episodes at once, it had this one bump of social media conversation where people were willing to talk to me about how much I love The Bear Season 2. And then no one wanted to talk about The Bear Season 2 anymore. Oh. <laughs> Even giving three nights for BlackBerry increases the opportunity that someone will see it one night, be talking about it the next day. Maybe more people will tune in the next day. And yeah. like there is like the opportunity to do those things that can help find audiences that I think is really interesting. And then I think some of this is also just my experience as a cinematographer where my, you know, I never had a point in my career where I wasn't framing for multiple formats. I am not no. that old. Frankly, there's probably not a DP left alive who's not that old because by 55, we were all conscious of TV and widescreen at the same time. And, you know, famously, everything for May It Rests in Piss, Quibi, was all framed with a cross format, where it's vertical and mm. horizontal simultaneously yeah. on set the full time. Yeah. And it's like, you know, that's, yeah. And, and actually, I take it back, not Rest in Piss. I, I don't hate Quibi that much. I just like making <laughs> fun of it. And I like making fun of it. I means I like it. It's fun. We needed something at the time to collectively laugh about because we were in yes. a pandemic and those were dark days. I I want to shout out also, we have an interview with the editor of The Bear, Joanna Nagel, which is fantastic. And she talks about season one and season two. But I, I did have like a very funny experience on a United flight 
flying back from Houston, I think from Panama to Houston. And it was one of those situations where they had like six movies you could choose from. Uh, Blackberry, 28 Weeks, not 28 Weeks Later, 28 Days Later, 28 Days, the Sandra Bullock recovery oh, film. Yeah. And No Hard Feelings and a couple others. And I had seen No Hard Feelings in theaters. And then I watched it again because I wanted to see... Well, first I watched Blackberry because... I'm obsessed with that movie. You should watch it. But then I watched No Hard Feelings, which has this infamous fight scene on the beach. And if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, but it's like Jennifer Lawrence, butt naked, fighting these kids who are taking the clothes. And it's so funny and it's so like, like relentless. It's Uh, like Eastern uh, Promises meets the Marx Brothers. Yeah. The Three Stooges. And it's like, one of the funniest things I've seen in a long time, especially in theaters, and and they had to, of course, edit it for the airplane. And it was like these, str- it was so punched in and so like digitally zoomed to the side. And I'm like, somebody did the best they could do with this scene that like is absolutely designed for hitting so hard. And watching it, I was like, whoever's watching this on the plane and has not seen the actual movie is probably very confused right now and missing out on very, very funny moment. But I was like, but, you know, kudos to the person who really tried really hard to make it work. You can do a lot in post. And and I'm I'm glad they didn't concede in any way for the plain edit in the actual film. Uh, I love the TV edits back in the day. You know, we can end on this, like the homage. I, I don't know if I had seen like Die Hard not on TV until I was probably like, I don't know, still too young. But it's always yippee Kaye, Melon Farmer, you know, and that was because <laughs> of the overdub. And that, like for the, I was, I still think about it all the time. And I remember getting in trouble in seventh or eighth grade because I thought that was such a funny line. So I, you had to like write a creative short story, and my guy in it was a egru cantaloupes. And then like I had like the the bad guy be like, like come with me, melon farmer. And I remember I got a note home, and I was like, I don't, I don't think that's a that's creative. I don't think I should be getting in trouble for making them think of the f word. Uh, you know, but I agree. So, so wait, wait, your teacher was literally like, you made me think about fuck. And I went to trouble? Catholic school, Charles, the amount of things I got, I made people think about and got notes on for, you know, it was staggering, which every time my parents are like, why Hollywood? I'm like, you, you just didn't know, but you did it to yourselves. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Moving on. Gigi, you just shot on an airplane stage, y- yes. which is like super fun. Tell us about shooting on an airplane stage. We have officially wrapped the movie as of last yesterday. Thank you. I feel so very tired again, but I think (laughs) really it feels like I'm at the I'm at the halfway point. I need an intermission, and and then comes you know the next stages, which are post production, and then getting the film out there. So I'm like trying to conserve energy. But we we found this set, this standing set in Anaheim that's pretty affordable at the Silver Dreams factory. Shout out to some No Film School listeners who advised on on some airplane set ideas. And this this was such a fun location to be in because they had they have like a prison, they have like a like a police station, they have a sort of 70s living room and it's clearly like made with such TLC and love. But it's also if you take a wrong turn on the soundstage, you're kind of like in this nightmare because you're just walking through prison and office and then you're back in an airplane and you're like, where, who, where am I? Is this a nightmare? But it was, it was great. And it was the biggest challenge I think for us was again, we have a micro budget and we had to figure out how to light the 
the standing set, which didn't have like walls to fly out. It's very, it was in a small, tight location. How to light it in a way that was like affordable and looked like a real airplane. So we ended up deciding to light it as if they were flying at night. So we shot in a way like towards the back of the plane and we had some people sleeping. We had my Nana and Poppy as extras. And I think it was, it, it, I'm so happy that it looked really good because Ryan Thomas, the DP and I, we, we said this could either really up our production, you know, clout or really take us out because it's the first scene in the movie. And and it establishes everything, and I and I think it went really well. I think it went really well. That's amazing. So I'm looking at the <laughs> website. So much it's of fifteen hundred a day for an airplane set, which is just insanely cheap. Yeah, that's like amazingly affordable. Yeah, and they have a, a discount for veterans. And our oh. LA producer, unit production manager Robert Frankel, is a vet, so we got a great discount. And yeah, it's. It, 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 I think it goes to show that like, you know, if you, you can sometimes dream, dream big within your script. And then like, especially if you're in LA, there's so many like crafts people who are so passionate and find a way to make it work. Like there's, there's a way to also shoot with limited resources to still think big. I did have earlier drafts that Jason read of the script where it was like crazy turbulence on the airplane and blah, blah, blah. I took that out independently but like i was laughing about how that would have been impossible and what was i thinking like that's going out out but then again like you know apparently you can shake a camera and you know thrum your fingers on it and it actually looks like things are moving and shaking yeah so i i definitely recommend that and and there's so many fun places to 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 be and you kind of i've never shot on a soundstage outside of at film school and the day I was supposed to shoot the scene I was directing, the pandemic happened. So this was my first soundstage experience. It was great. There's something so magical about the artifice of a soundstage. When we think about Hollywood, you know, it's like, whatever. I'm not always thinking about like the Revenant shooting on location. I'm thinking about walking into a soundstage and suddenly you turn to the left and there's a whole house built inside, you know, in different rooms on top of other ways. And I guess it's that, what is that, last Scream 3, you know, where they're running around, like that sort of, effect. Uh, I'll say like one of the happiest memories I have in Los Angeles is I was on the Sony lot walking around with my brother. My friend had just called us on. I was giving my brother an unofficial tour and the script was like, you guys want to come on to a soundstage? And he just walked us <laughs> on to the set of Ray Donovan season three while they were shooting and we just hung out with this random grip and then when they cut, he's like, everyone's going home. We can walk around now. And we just walked around all the set, got in the boxing ring. I was like, my, you know, Maybe the only time my brother was impressed by what I do for a living. So, but it's like that kind of magic is amazing. I remember, you know, starting out in college, you have to make a short film. I decided like an idiot to make a World War II short. And I was like, how do we do this? And how do we get it? And I, I, you know, put ads in the paper and people dropped off different things in my apartment story for a different day for things. But I really wanted a tank at the end of this thing. And by Penn State University is a World War II museum. And they were just like, oh, you can shoot with our tank. So we just at the end shot and put like really good sound design of a tank driving. And then we just move the camera like the tank was rolling. And it just is it's at the end. It's only for five seconds. We did it as the sun was going down. It's out front. So it like looked uh, a little different. But I do think it's like if you can imagine it and you're willing to work on it practically, you can make anything work. And just having that set just builds into such a believability that, you know, I, I think other people don't go that extra mile. Or they cut that scene or whatever. But 
finding a way around it. I just think like, it's kind of just that, that magic of cinema where you're like, I, you know, I can make people think we're on an airport, you know? Yeah. That's some real better call Saul with his um, amazing commercial advertising team mojo there going to the local historical museum to get a tank like well done very impressed you could do Um, it i just think like people don't just try to do it if they say no you just don't have it but if you just try a little bit and go the extra mile like you'd just be shocked at what people let you shoot or do or whatever it's also just nice to remember that some of these things are more affordable than you think they're going to be like as soon as you see an airplane in in a script a lot of people are like oh we're not gonna afford that and it's like 1500 bucks with a site rep, 1800 bucks, and you're on the stage in Orange County with an interior airplane thing. And like, is it is it a full fuselage from an A340? No, it's probably pretty small and pretty cramped, and you have to work to make it look good. But if you need that scene in the airplane, because that sets up the rest of your plot, and that's the place to do it, you can figure out a way to do it. And, you know, I definitely have worked on a lot of productions where you're like, oh, one of the perks of L.A., is that there's a lot of things like that around. Like, this isn't even L.A., it's down in Anaheim. But, like, L.A. has a surprising... Like, look, it's always a debate. Do I move to L.A. or do I not move to L.A.? I did my 13 years there. I'm happy to be out. But when you are doing scrappy, low-budget production, one of the perks of L.A. is, like, I hadn't even heard of this place, and I did 13 years of work there. I can name, like, four other places in L.A. that have, like, nine standing sets. There was a place we always used to go to way out in Temecula or way out in the North Valley that had like a standing spaceship set that was like actually quite nice. And so you'd book a little job and you have a spaceship scene and you're like, all right, well, I know where that scene's going. I think it's closed now, but there used to be a place called the Entertainium, which was east of downtown L.A., which famously like all the showers worked, which implied that they were doing a lot of shower scenes. I will leave it at that. Oh, my gosh. But, they, you know, they had a standing police station. They had a check in room. They had a, a locker room. They had medical office and you're like okay i you know and like when you're first starting out you end up at those places a lot because you can make it work and i guarantee you we have all seen movies and television we love that ended up in some of those standing sets because that was the budget they had for that one scene or that one moment and learning how to make that look good is actually a skill i was interviewing a dp a couple years ago and he took over a show and he was like yeah the reason i got hired is because they were doing set work and that's a part of life like Set work's part of life. Actors like knowing where they're going every day. Like TV ends up on sets a lot. And the 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 producers felt like the first DP for the first half of the season was letting it look like a set. And Mm -hmm. I had learned how to not make sets look like sets. And so, like, you know, you can have the the indie dream passion of I will make them just look, I will shoot everything on location. Yeah. But in reality, you're gonna end up on sets sometimes, even on tiny projects. And learning all of the tricks of how to make that look good. Because you've all seen something in a movie that you think is a location that's actually set. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the like things that you're thinking about to make a set not look like a set, especially on a tight budget? Or what stood out to you from that DP interview? I mean, the first thing is get as far away from the walls as you can. Keep all the light off the walls you can. And use the shallowest depth of field you can. Because a set wall will never look like a real wall, no matter how hard you try. Like, especially if you see a scene. A properly made set wall, there won't be seams, but like there's a magic to a real wall. They're very flat. They have 15 layers of paint from the last 80 years of being lived in. They they all have like a coat of nicotine from the 70s that you can't replicate on a stage. And so like you want to make sure that set wall is out of focus and you want to make sure that you're blocking the scenes. The set wall is oblique to camera. So it like runs into space and you're using the shallowest depth of field you can. You're keeping as much light as you can off those set walls. And those are usually the good places you start. And then in the airplane, it's the same thing, right? 
No matter how good that airplane set is, if you pay too much attention to the wall, you're going to see that you're like, oh, that air vent is not actually connected to anything. Or like, there's nothing outside those windows or whatever. So like the shallowest depth of field you can, like WFO for everything is one of the big tricks. I love that. Dare to dream, kids. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Dare to dream. Silver dreams. Yeah. Silver dreams. Love it. All right. Live subject today. We're going to wrap up real quick. I just want to talk about, we don't do a ton of tech news anymore just because, I don't know, I started to feel like tech is, I filmmaking tech matters, right? Like tech affects our decision-making, like the tech of 3D affected when intermissions were and Mm -hmm. the tech of the human bladder and the invention of the toilet affects when we put intermissions in longer movies. So I don't think tech is irrelevant, but we just do less tech than we used to. But there's an interesting tech thing I want to talk about today. Apple just dropped a whole bunch of new processors, the M3. And first off, it's tech news because Apple is back to releasing stuff every year that's dramatically faster than last year. There's like a lull. I had a 23 MacBook, 2013 MacBook Pro, and I reviewed it against the 2018 MacBook Pro. And it was faster than the 2018 MacBook Pro because it used oh, wow. like an NVIDIA thing that was optimized for video and they, they switched over to AMD and it wasn't as fast. And like five years is a long time for a computer to not get faster. And like the 2013 Mac Pros came out and then nothing else came out in the Pro for 2019. So there's a while where they were coming out with a new phone every year and it was faster and a new iPad every year and it faster and computers didn't feel like it. They are back to the like, oh, we're going to come out with new computers every year that are a lot faster for you video people. So you're shooting 8K and you want to be able to edit it on your laptop. You can now do it. So like, that's the thing is that like, I've got no complaints. The new ones are great. They're like killer fast. My, my I have, I basically no complaint. The only thing I would like now out of tech for video is I would really like ProRes Raw to get cut in Blackmagic Resolve. We'll save that for later. The interesting thing I thought about this event was it was at night and we were all like, well, this is weird. Like they're doing a night event. Like, you know, your, your average Apple press day is like 1030 on the West coast. So it's 130 on the East coast. So news event, news orgs on the East coast are still able to write it up. And like the people in England can still write it up at like midnight or whatever, if they want to stay up late. And then we got this invite and it was 830 on East coast time and 530. So like what? And then it turns out they shot the whole thing on iPhone and they didn't announce that until after the fact. And it looked really good. And I think a lot of the audience didn't notice it was shot on iPhone and live event being shot on iPhone is kind of amazing. And like, obviously for the last decade, iPhone cameras have been getting better and better, better. That's a cliche. The iPhone 15 is actually the first one where it's sort of a major leap. Like it does log capture and lets you grade the log footage. And it shoots straight to USB-C. And like, I was just on a job last week, the job Todd shot. And we were shooting like, you know, two cameras, Fuji X, H2S, really great stuff. And I I just kept pulling out my iPhone and shooting extra angles or extra things or capturing the moment on it. And I'm like, it's it's in a new place now. And that's what I want to talk about. It's like, they're doing that. I think one of the reasons they did their press event at night is night footage looks better on digital. And mm-hmm. also showing off that they can do low light because iPhone cameras with their small sensors couldn't really do night footage before, yeah. but now they can. And, you know, there's like scenes as they're like walking around the Ample campus into the theater, the tall iPhone. And I think it is dramatically better than it was even a couple of years ago. I remember there was an episode of Ted Lasso two years ago that I'm pretty sure was shot on iPhone, but, but they didn't make a big hullabaloo out of it because I think, I think it didn't look as good as the other episodes of the season. Yeah. I think they did it and they thought they would make a big hell of blue out of it. And then afterwards they were like, yeah, maybe we don't make a big. Yeah, is that the headline yeah. we want? Like, like, Episode yeah. looks dramatically less good. Yeah. 
Yeah, it yeah. wasn't dramatic. You had to be yeah. a cinematography nerd to notice, but if you noticed, you noticed, and you were like, "These are." They, they were making some. The biggest thing is they're making weird coverage decisions that I thought were motivated by the lens choice of the iPhone. There was stuff where I was like, "That's wider than I think you want to be there." Oh, I bet this was iPhone and you couldn't go closer or whatever. But yeah, I mean, everybody like it was. It just looks good. Like it just looked like a good thing. And they made a little short film. Stefan Sonnenfeld, a company three colored it. There's there's some quotes out from him. So it's, you know, it's good stuff. It's I always think it's crazy. fascinating. You know, they always do those commercials when these comes out. And, and I, the one I'm thinking of right now is the Olivia Rodrigo one. But it's like, yeah, we shot this commercial on an iPhone and here's the iPhone you can buy. And I think like if you if you put your finger on like the history of when they started doing that to now, I'm now I would not I'd never even know it was an iPhone. They sh- you know, with this the newest one, I was like, oh, you are shooting this on an iPhone. But also like it looks incredible versus like. There's a really fun snowball fight one a couple of years ago that I was like, oh, this looks good for an iPhone. Like there's still some limitations with the bright lights and like you said, the darkness, but you know, or these contests that are like shoot it on an iPhone film festival or whatever. It's like, well, now it should still look legit. You know what I mean? Now there's really no excuses, but it's also, you know, like we're real big on the democratization of filmmaking, yeah, no film school. And I feel like these kind of cameras in your hand, you know, it's like, like I still have my whatever Canon 5D and I'm like, am I going to ever shoot on this? You know, like and obviously for some reasons, maybe, but like truly with these new iPhones, you know, the kind of sky's the limit in the palm of your hand. Yeah. The big thing I want to see is I want to see a whole wave of like 90 different companies come out with an SSD holder for iPhone. Cause that's mm-hmm. the thing It's like right now I'm wandering around with my SSD just Velcro to the back, which is fine. Um, Cause it's so much easier to shoot straight to the SSD and you don't have to like airdrop the footage off. It's great. I love it. Yeah. It's like, it is the game changer for me, the USB-C port. And Velcro's great, but like, give me a real holder, somebody. Like, Tilta, come out with the iPhone USB or small rig or somebody. Charles, you got a 3D print one and then patent it, you know? This is your this is your calling. <laughs> I mean, there has been a long time where I'm like, shit, should there should be some Charles Hayne branded gear? I'd wear that t-shirt bag? everywhere. Just the t-shirt that says Charles Hayne branded gear. I would <laughs> wear that in my day to day. I'd wear that yeah. to my the 33 millimeter class. <laughs> yeah. Teacher's pet. All right, guys. Yeah. So that's this week yeah. on the No Film School podcast. Study 35 millimeter film with me next summer in Brooklyn, th- Brooklyn35millimeter.com. It's a college class for college credit, but anybody can take it. So you want to shoot 35, you get to shoot 35 for a day, footage for your reel. See you next summer. That's me. I'm at Lost in Graceland on social media. I'm just starting to post about the movie. I was trying to hold back as much as I can, but everyone else is posting. So I'm just like, I guess it's out there. And I'm reposting, so you can see the airplane set. You can see some of the stuff we did in Panama. And you can follow my work at ggihawkins.com. I'm at Jason Hellerman, both Instagram and Twitter. And Jason at nofilmschool.com if you want to email me. I enjoyed a spirited conversation I had on a Sunday morning with a No Film School listener about the ending of the thing. Uh, It was a fun email to wake up to and go back and forth over. All, again, in done nicely and in a fun discussion. So... You know, if you, if you email me, I'll read and I will reply whether or not I will agree with you, you know, as back to back. But, you know, keep the questions coming in. Happy to do it and keep reading No Film School. <laughs>